Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, we're moving ahead in James's letter to chapter 3. The uh, particular text for today is found there on uh, page 9 in your bulletin. Lots going on in these few verses. We're just going to read the first 12 of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of, every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you will move in a very transforming way as we make our way through this text in Jesus' good name. Amen. There's a moment in Matthew's gospel where Jesus, he meets this demon-oppressed man who can't speak and can't see. And he heals the man. Now, this do you think is good news? The demon flees, the blind see, the mute speak. There are a bunch of Pharisees, we're told there, you know, religious leaders of the Jewish nation at the time, and what do you think their response to this is? Their response is, well, we can tell you what's going on here. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. He's hooked up with the top demon, and that's how he can throw out these lesser demons. To which Jesus says, well, that's interesting, because what that must mean then is that Satan somehow is fighting Satan. He's fighting his own kingdom. How is his kingdom going to stand? That's very odd. And so he exposes the foolishness of what they're saying, and he says, actually what's going on here is the Holy Spirit is doing this, which means the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's when he says, you can say a lot of things against the Son of Man. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It won't be forgiven you in this age or the age to come. And he says these words. Either He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, this is important in the context, right? The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Now, it's a few years later when Jesus' brother James is writing this letter. And he might have been there that day, actually, when that happened. And I wonder if that episode is in his mind 
as he writes this particular few verses because you try to wrap your mind around the fact that the teachers of Israel, the teachers of God's covenant people are insulting the work of God's Holy Spirit by calling it satanic. Their hearts are so threatened by Jesus and by the coming of God's kingdom among them through Jesus that they reject the Messiah that they've been waiting for for thousands of years and they teach others to reject the Messiah. And by that teaching of these teachers of Israel that rejects Jesus and, and, and says his work is satanic, they eventually, as you know the story, they steer the entire Jewish nation of that time into shipwreck. And now James is writing this to a new Israel to what he calls at the beginning of his letter, the 12 tribes who are now gathered around Jesus. So I hope by now in our series, you've kind of begun to get a feel for this, that there is an old kind of shell of Israel that has rejected the Messiah, and there's now a new 12 tribes, a new Israel, believing Jews who follow Jesus, and into that stump of believing Israel, God's going to eventually graft in a bunch of Gentile branches. But James is writing to this new Israel, this, these 12 tribes, who are, the, who are Jesus' people, and especially the teachers among them. And he basically says in these 12 verses, my brothers, let's be real slow to speak. Let's watch our mouths. The prophet Jeremiah foretold a time when God was going to do something Moses couldn't. He was going to take the law, the, what we call the Torah, the instruction of the law, and he was going to write that on human hearts. God was going to send a word into, his, into the midst of his people that was going to purify them inside. See, Moses couldn't do that. Moses, what did he write the law on? The tablets of stone, right? I mean, you can read it. It's outside of you, though. And the, the, the new thing God's going to do is he's going to take his word and put it in the heart and purify the heart and enable his people from the heart to bring forth good fruit. Well, James thinks these people he's writing to, they are that people. Because you remember just a few verses ago in chapter 1, he said that the, the Father, God the Father, has brought you forth by the word of truth. And, and the word of truth for James, it certainly involves the law and the prophets. It includes all of that, but it's more because it's the law, the Torah, and the prophets. But it's also, it's the gospel of everything Jesus has done to fulfill all of that. See, that's the... That's the fuller word that you and I live under. Moses gave the law. The prophets interpreted the law. Jesus, the gospel, is what Moses said and what the prophets said, but also the good news that Jesus has fulfilled all of that, that everything that the law and the prophets was looking forward to, it's arrived with Jesus. It's what we call the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. That's the word of truth. It includes the Torah and the prophets and the full gospel of Jesus. And God has, James said to his readers, implanted that, He's implanted that in you. And he just told his readers in the last chapter, when God implants, when God the Father implants his word in you and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's kingdom, just it grabs you and wakes you up and makes you alive inside. It does not produce zombie faith. It does not produce cadaver faith, a sort of dead body that looks like a human being but actually isn't. There is faith that you can profess with your mouth. You know, you can come in here and sing the doxology and recite the Nicene Creed and, you know, have a Jesus bumper sticker, you know, fish sticker on your car and all of that. But it's possible to profess being a Christian, but there's no spirit, there's no animating pulse of new ways of living. That's what real faith produces. It makes you live. It makes 
It, it gives your whole life new standards and priorities. It brings forth, as he said in the last chapter, good works. And in this chapter, a whole new way of speaking, good words. You know, we live... This, <laughs> I probably have enjoyed preparing for this sermon the least in my entire James series because I'm so convicted by it. We live in the most... I think this is not an exaggeration. We live in the most talkative generation in the history of generations. More people are running their mouths either on their phones or in person or, you know, social media, whatever. Like, we just talk. We, we talk all the time. And, we, and in this very talkative generation, beloved, we just so much need to hear God's word about words. God's word about the tongue. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it, it gets into our business a little bit. It certainly got into mine this week. I want you to notice, first of all, that God here describes the tongue. I hope this, I hope this won't be confusing to you. God describes the tongue as a tool of dominion, a tool of rule, a tool of dominion. Notice this. Now, you guys know that in the original creation, what did God make Adam to do? He said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, take dominion, right? That was one of his basic tasks. He was a king, go rule the world. And it's interesting as you look at Adam's, like, he gets started as a king, he gets started as a dominion taker, and the very first tasks of his life are verbal tasks. He doesn't go out and, you know, start chopping down trees and building things, although we're, I'm sure he did that eventually. He actually goes out and he starts naming animals. God gets his, puts his tongue to work. And then, crazily enough, after he's kind of gone through the animals and realized there's no one, no one there who's a good companion for him, he, God takes his rib, makes a woman, and then the next thing we hear from Adam is more words. He actually speaks and he addresses his wife in a very different way from how he addressed the animals who were, he was literally supposed to take dominion over them, but to his wife, he speaks this love poem in a way that creates a bond between them. You are bone of my bone. You are flesh of my flesh. And he kind of, with his words, creates this whole picture of what their relationship is supposed to be like. But this is Adam the dominion taker. And it is important that in this text, James compares the tongue to other tools of dominion. In the realm of nature, if you want to take a wild horse and do something fruitful with it, you need a bridle. You got to subdue the horse. You got to govern the horse. That's what a tool of dominion, the bridle. In the, in the realm of cultural artifacts, you know, we make things like ships, and you need a rudder to steer the ship. That's a form of dominion taking, forcing, in a way, this ship to go where it ought to go. And the tongue is like those other tools of dominion. He explicitly says here, you can see in verse 2, that mastering the tongue, this is such an incredible verse. If you're able to bridle your tongue, if you're able to not stumble in what you say with your tongue, if you've got that tool in hand and you've mastered it, you are able then to rule and bridle your entire body. In fact, he says, you're a perfect person. Now, you guys know by now, when James says perfect, he does not mean sinless. Perfection for him is the completeness of maturity. It's becoming all that God intended for us. And he basically says, if you can master your tongue, you have reached fully mature self-government. Now, he says no one can do it. <laughs> but that would, if you could, if you could rule your tongue, then you would have reached like self-mastery on a massive level. But I think there's another kind of body, another kind of life that also is governed by the tongue. Because he opens up with teachers and their influence in the community, I think there's a very strong hint that master. Mastering the tongue isn't just crucial to steering your body, your whole life, before the Lord. Mastering the tongue is also crucial to steering the body of the community. 
The tongue is a means by which we exercise social authority, social influence. You, get, you can move a body of people using words. Words are a way of building in a community rather than just burning stuff down in the community. So what I want to talk about under this tool of dominion is I want to just reflect together for a few minutes on, number one, how the tongue bridles our passions, how, it, how it's a way of ruling ourselves, how it bridles our passions, and then I want to talk a little bit about how it builds our relations. It's social, kind of thinking of it as a social rudder. And I really want to just reflect together, because you've all, I, how many of you have got a tongue? <laughs> as far as I know, none of you is mute, so this all does apply. How the tongue bridles our passions. The power of the tongue is a tool of mastering yourself. Now, you guys know that the primary thing that distinguishes us from beasts is that you and I have a soul, right? We're not just instinctive animals. We have this thing called a soul, which is, it's hard to describe. It's this spiritual dimension of you and me that actually reflects the, the spirituality of God. See, God doesn't have a body, and there's a part of us that actually can exist outside the body. It is, it is a spiritual part of us that is like God in that way, and it's interesting, how does God disclose to us his otherwise invisible spiritual being? How does God, like, open himself to us and come to us and connect to us, being invisible, being spiritual? Well, he uses what? He speaks. He actually says to Israel when they were at Sinai, he says, remember this, you didn't see a form that day, you heard a voice. God uses words to connect to us, and so do we. I actually, if you sit, you know, if you're a really good grunter and you have great body language, I might learn some things after a couple of hours of sitting with you if we neither, neither of us said anything. It would be a very awkward experience. We might get something done if we sort of like, you know, whistled and grunted and made weird noises, and I'd probably get some idea of what's going on in your life, but words open you up in a whole different way to me. They, they open this vast possibility of getting inside of somebody's actual being. But here's what, I'm, here's what James seems to be saying. There's this intimate link between your words and your soul, between your tongue and your heart, and that link is so direct that as surely as a change in your heart will change the way you speak, okay? So that's, that's one direction this connection flows. If your thinking changes, your speech will change. If your emotions change, your speech will change. It actually also goes the other way. Ruling your tongue is one way of ruling your emotions, your heart, your passions, what's going on inside of you. You see this all the time in the way we talk to children. Why do we say to children who are throwing a tantrum on the floor, use words? Use words. Don't just flail and shriek. Use words. Talk to me. Why do you say to a child, no, no, let's try saying that again, Now, you are doing heart work. You are shaping the mind and soul and heart of this child by getting at a change in words. Say it again, because as a child says it a different way, their emotions are changing. You are working on their inside using that tool of their words. Why do you say to a child, I'm sorry, it's not enough that you felt please? You must say please. Because you must say thank you. Oh, I'm thinking in my, in my head. No, you're not thinking in your head. You're going to say it with your words because there's something about saying thank you that is working on your, it actually makes you thankful. It forces your heart into a place that maybe you're a little bit resistant to. Why do you say it's not enough to feel sorry? I want to, I want to hear you say the words, I'm sorry, because there's a very strong chance that child is not sorry until they've said those words. 
if you have a problem with impulsive speech, that impulsive speech, again, this direction, this, this, this flows both directions, that impulsive speech is a... It, re- it expresses, it manifests the fact that you lack emotional control. So you're, what's going on in your heart, you ha- your heart is not ruled, which is why your words are impulsive. But it's actually true that, again, that road runs both ways. If you engage in impulsive speech, you are aggravating the impulsiveness of your heart. There are people who actually their character deteriorates on Twitter. They get to be worse people on Twitter. Why? Because those bursts of impulsive, uncontrolled speech in these tweets are actually feeding the internal impulsiveness of their souls. The road runs both ways. And Jesus, James is telling us, came to restore this tool of dominion in the lives of his people, to restore our self-government over our tongues such that no rotten speech comes out of our mouth. That is the command of the apostle. Let no rotten speech come out of your mouth but only what is good for building up. Like, that's the goal of Jesus, to have a community of people where there's never anything rotten that blows forth from your mouth, but only what is good for building up. And I want to just sort of camp for a second on this, how the tongue, getting a hold of our tongues, can bridle our passions. Do you know when you need this tool the most? You need it when you're suffering the most. Whether from natural evils, like that horror that happened in Florida, or a hurricane, or whatever it might be, or moral evils. Someone has committed an injustice against you, or you're just watching it in the world in general. When you are suffering, that's what you need, this tool of mastering your tongue. Because, you know, when, when things are good, you probably say some stupid stuff. There's a lot of silliness that comes out of people's mouths when they're feeling good. When you're suffering, when you're in pain, We need to get real. Our hearts, just like Israel out in the wilderness, when they came to a place where there was no water or there was no food or there were bad guys who wanted to, you know, get get to them, what what happened, what came out of their hearts? Their hearts erupted in what? They started cursing God, cursing Moses, grumbling, complaining, quarreling, contentiousness. What came out of their mouths in those crucibles of suffering were these words that reflected bad hearts. And the place to begin when we realize that I am not doing well in a time of suffering, there is a Christian discipline to take yourself back to the word of the Father. Because remember, this is never moralism, beloved. It's always working out of grace. It's always becoming what God has made me. It's always responding to a love that has secured me by the death and resurrection of Jesus and has given me the Holy Spirit. There's nothing hopeless or moralistic or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You go back to the Father's word, to who he is, to who Jesus is, to what's going on really in the world and your place in that under him as your father and with Jesus as your king and you go back to that word of the kingdom and then here's what you have to do. Here's the discipline. You need to channel the misery of your heart into the appropriate form of verbal expression. It is possible to take misery and channel that into what the Bible calls lament. Lamenting is not ranting. Now, I am a ranter, ask my wife. When I am in misery, I rant. I just emote, rage and frustration. Lament is different. Lament is crying out the pain of my heart in faith. It's saying, God, I do not understand what you are doing, but I don't doubt you. It is crying, it is weeping, it is wailing, it is sometimes in a way raging out the pain of our souls, but under God. 
And you have to teach your tongue how to lament rather than ranting. Sometimes you need to turn your tongue to something else. Take the word of God and apply your tongue to thanksgiving instead. But just ranting is not Christian. It's not, it, it comes from a heart that is poisoned by bitterness. And, and, and the, the, the biblical discipline is to learn how to take the pain, which is real, and move it towards thanksgiving or toward lament. There are other things. Woundedness. When you're wounded, it is a discipline to take your tongue and enforce a period of patient silence. I am not going to take my woundedness and just sort of vomit it out in words. I'm going to be patient and bridle my tongue. Or if I'm wounded, another, another way to, to bridle my tongue is move my speech toward a soft answer. I am angry. I am wounded. I want to lash out right now, but I'm going to find a way to take this sense that I've just been disrespected, I've just been hurt, this person is neglecting me, whatever it is, and I'm going to find a way to speak gently rather than just cursing. Sometimes you take your woundedness in a different direction with your tongue. You, you, you bridle your tongue toward godly candor. Talking with a brother not too long ago about something that's called radical candor. We are not very honest with each other quite often. Most of our relationships don't, frankly, don't have the they don't have the strength to 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 bear up under real honesty with each other. But Christian relationships, there should be honesty. I should be able to come to you and rather than just talking out self-protective lies. How you doing, Ben? Fine. You know, sometimes that's a loving thing to say. Nobody needs to hear all of your dirty laundry. Sometimes it's a lie. Sometimes you would do better to say, I'm not doing well. In fact, brother, if you really want to know, you have wounded me. And I need to talk to you about it because I love you and I'm not going to let this relationship die. (laughs) I'm just not. I care about what God is doing in our relationship, so I need to talk to you and I need need you to listen to me with some patience because I might not say things well. That kind of, that's ruling your tongue. It is mastering your tongue. Hatred of evil. When you see evils in the world. It is possible to bridle your tongue toward calls for justice that do not descend into spite. You don't see a lot of this now, but it is possible to call for justice. Lift up your voice for the oppressed without descending into spite and and into dehumanizing ways of speaking. What I'm saying in all this is simply this. If you cannot change how you feel, change what you say. This is a Christian discipline. The tongue is a bridle on your heart, on your soul. You can move your spirit in a different direction using the tool of the tongue. That is Christian dominion over the body. Use the bridle. Still under the tool of dominion, how the tongue bridles our passions. But it does more. It also builds our relations. Let's talk about the tongue not so much now as a bridle on our passions, but as a rudder uh, for our relationships. We've already sort of hinted at this, how the tongue is a tool to steer. I know that sounds like a really manipulative way of expressing it. I don't mean it that way. You'll you'll see what I mean in a sec. Steering, not just ourselves, but other people around us. Steering our communities of which we're a part. Your words steer people. Your words influence people. Your words take people places, dare I say. This is real. You can pretend it's not, but it is. What I'd like to suggest here, and I think this is what James is talking about when he speaks about teachers, but I think he has more than teachers in mind. I want you to consider with me that words are a way of exercising, this is going to seem strong, words are a way of exercising God's own authority in our relationships. Let me say it again. Your words, my words, are a way of exercising God's own authority 
in our relationships. Now, here's the problem. In modern times, here's how we think about authority. You say authority to a modern person, most of our thinking about authority in the modern world is a caricature of a grumpy adult wagging their finger in the face of a child who just really wants to have fun. Like, that's what authority is, right? I'm the kid who wants to have fun, all the authority in my life, you know, grouchily waves their finger in my face and keeps me from having fun. That's authority. There's a book, a really, really thought-provoking book by a guy named Victor Lee Austin called Up With Authority, where he offers a very different picture of what authority actually is. And he uses, on the cover of the book, he actually uses an orchestra conductor as a model. And this is what he says in brief. He says, an authority is attractive. An authority is charismatic. An authority causes us to want to follow. It's as if the orchestra conductor were to say, follow me. I mean, you watch a conductor of an orchestra. When's the last time you all saw an orchestra conductor? It's, it's authoritarian motions, right? Like the guy is like, follow me. And he's pretty intense about it. I mean, it's like strong authority. But here's the point. The, authority, the, the orchestra conductor, it's as if he were to say, follow me, musicians, and you'll discover what it really means to be a musician. I'll bring music out of you you can never have in a private room practicing. I'll bring music out of you guys you could never have. It was just a bunch of you sitting here without someone to direct you. I'll make you guys see what really being a musician is. And Austin goes on to say, he says, Indeed, the implicit message of any authority is just that. Follow me. You'll discover what it really means to be human. Follow me. You'll discover what it means to be an electrician. Follow me. You'll discover what it means to be a marine. Follow me, you'll discover what it means to be a Christian. Follow me as I follow Christ. Come with me. There's more. There's more. That's authority. That's what great teachers do. Have you ever met Shakespeare? Have you ever actually walked through the Civil War? Have you ever met Thucydides? And you're like, nope. Let me open the windows. Let me open the doors. Come with me. Follow me. I'll show you what there is to see. And, of course, some in the Christian community are called to exercise that kind of verbal authority in particular ways. I mean, there are teachers, there are pastors, etc. But what I'm saying here, and I think James is making this point very subtly in this text, is that that authority to speak God's possibilities, to speak what the Lord has opened in his kingdom, and to point all of us towards the full humanness that is possible through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, that authority belongs to all Christians. That does not just belong to pastors or to teachers. You are, in fact, I'm going to be a little bit stronger about this. It isn't just a possibility for all of you. It's a commandment. You are disciple makers as followers of Jesus. You share the commission. Go make disciples. And what does that even mean? It means you must be able to say to people, follow me as I follow Christ. There's so much more. You know, in the words of the Narnians, farther up, farther in. That's what I do up here every week. There's nothing, I mean, it's not like, it's, it's not really like a, what I'm doing every week is basically just saying in one way or another, I'm opening up the Bible and saying there's more, guys. <laughs> Let's not be small. Let's not be shriveled. There's more. That's authority. Now, Adam looks at Eve. Eh, can you imagine if he'd said that? Eh, okay. Talk about a downer of a honeymoon. He opens up the possibilities of their relationship by saying these words, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
There's more. There's more. Now you can already see we are not steering each other by our own ideas and our own wants. We are steering each other according to the word of God, according to the word of truth, according to the gospel of the kingdom. To the extent that our words do not reflect the reality that God has spoken, then we are speaking on our own authority. If I'm standing up here just bloviating on Sunday about what I think you all ought to become, you should stop listening to me and walk out. I am here to deliver to you, this is what God has said you are and you shall become by his grace. There's more. But you speak that too. You speak it to your own heart. You speak it to your your Christian friends. You actually speak it to the world when you tell people this is not all there is. There's more. And then you're not speaking on your own authority. Your words match the word, the implanted word. Otherwise, we're just fools talking and only a fool would listen. But this means, beloved, that there is a Christian obligation in steering the ships of our communities There's a Christian obligation to use our tongues not just as a bridle. I think a lot of Christian teaching on the tongue tends to focus on the negative, stuff we should not be saying. I don't actually often hear it preaching on what we're commanded to say. The positive obligation to use our tongues not just as a bridle on ungodly passions, for example, but as a rudder to speak people, to steer people toward that horizon of everything God has for us. That is an obligation. You are called to do that. What I'm saying, beloved, is as much as I'm saying don't say certain things, I'm actually saying to you, say something. Say something. Our apathetic, self-absorbed little hearts miss opportunities for building speech, for constructive speech. You know, it, it, this requires some things. This obligation, we're still under the tool of dominion, how the tongue builds our relations, thinking about this obligation to speak and steer people toward everything God has for us. It requires at least two things. Let me just offer these very quickly. A furnished soul, a furnished soul. To speak well, you need a furnished soul and you need an observant eye, an observant eye. What do I mean by a furnished soul? This is what I mean. In 2012, I was in a really interesting time. We had just planted Trinity uh, the, the autumn before, and I was tired. It had been a, kind of a challenging few years getting that off the ground, as you know. And um, I was uh, very lonely in, in that time. And the Lord led me to an email group um, that I was invited by a friend to join. And I got on this group. And f- it, it lasted eight years. And I cannot even begin to tell you over the course of that eight years the conversations that went on on this email group with these friends. And I was hearing the, about what they were reading and hearing about their experiences in various uh, vocations, some pastors, but many not. Um, we would get together once a year down in South Carolina and we'd hole up in this retreat center and for like three days we would present papers and we would talk about the papers and we'd have hours and hours of conversation and have lots of food and lots of drink and smoke pipes and it was just an intense experience of just sharpening each other. And over the course of these eight years, you know what I realized? It was like being a buoy in water that was just rising. This community of friends carried me through, I can't even tell you how many times they carried me through times when I would have been in despair of aloneness by myself, out of ideas, times when I thought I have preached everything I have to preach, I have nothing more to say, I should tell the Trinity folks I'm resigning, and all of a sudden I'd have a conversation in this email group and I'd like, I have a four series, it just exploded. This is what these people did for me. So much of what I've ministered to you in the last decade has been out of this friendship. 
And it's got me thinking about friendships because these things are disappearing from 21st century society. It, is, it appalls me how, how isolated and alone we have become, beloved. And, and, and it's because we are not in friendships where this kind of thing is happening, where we are, we are literally lifting each other up, literally teaching each other, literally opening possibilities that my mind would never get to on my own. That's what friendships do. And you need a furnished soul in order to be one who can steer people towards greater wisdom, greater insight, less, less of the stupidity over here, more of the good pastures over here. That, that takes a certain kind of soul. It is possible to have a very small mind and a very small soul and live a very socially shallow life where basically... Basically, all of your conversation is exhausted by either chit-chat, I'm not against chit-chat, but when that's all you've got. I know people who do not have any conversations deeper than chit-chat. How's the weather? Is basically, that's it. Or you have this occasionally intimate moment where you gripe about things together, and you feel intimate because you've griped together. Like, if that is the extent of your conversation, it will produce a very small soul and a very shallow social life because you have never had anyone walk into your mind and heart like these friends did for me in this email group and just start throwing open windows and doors. I have had so many times when I have listened to a conversation happening between friends and I've realized I, my world has just completely changed. I never even knew that was a question. Having, now that the question's been asked, I can see how that relates to this over here and this over there and oh my word, and I just, my, my mind just blows up. If you don't ever have that, you will be small. And if you are small, you don't have much to offer. If your, my word, if your mind, if your soul, if your imagination is exhausted by what is on offer in modern entertainment, for example, you know, to the extent the warehouse of your soul is not furnished by conversation with fertile minds, fertile minds present and fertile minds past, if you do not read, you do not think, you do not converse, you are not being pulled up by relationships in which you are being furnished, then the reality is you will become a very poor storehouse from which to feed people who are hungry, build people who are broken, liberate people who are enslaved. I remember what called me into the ministry. I'm, I'm going to ramble today. Y'all going to just have to deal with this. What called me into the ministry years ago was a simple realization. I'd spent most of my life in spiritual oppression, and I saw a lot of people in spiritual oppression, and I realized someone needed to speak a word that could free them. It is freeing to know truth. It is freeing to know God. It is freeing to understand grace. It is freeing to not be trapped where you don't know anything and so predators, spiritual predators, can just prey upon you and keep you in systems of thought and, and, and social structures that are just cultish and weird and, and enslaving. And I wanted to, but I learned you have to speak because people spoke to me and they broke the bars. You have to have a furnished soul to speak like that. It's been said, great minds talk about ideas, small minds talk about people. That's true. Certain kinds of minds want to talk about certain kinds of things, but it's also true that talking about great ideas steers you toward greatness of soul. Again, that road runs both ways. A furnished soul, so you can be a steerer to your friends, to your community, and an observant eye, because it's something else. You know, to have a furnished soul, great, good for you. But if you don't look around and you don't ask yourself, who needs the good word? you got to get your head up, man. Who needs a good word? Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, says the proverb, but a good word makes it glad. Well, can you tell this afternoon who in this room needs a good word? Where the anxious heart might be, it's weighed down. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Wow. 
but perverseness in the tongue breaks the spirit. I've noticed so many times in my family the power of the tongue over the family mood. But you've got to be looking around. Who's struggling? And it's not just a tool of dominion. This will be super quick, but it's something else. You'll notice James says the tongue's not just a tool of dominion. Because he shifts in the middle of verse 5, doesn't he? Again, this will be super quick. Tongues, a small member, got great power, boasts of great things, and yet it's also a world of destruction, isn't it? Everything I've said about a tool of dominion, all the tools of dominion can be perverted into destruction. So it is with the tongue. The images here are actually kind of frightening. The tongue is like a spreading stain. It's like a fire ravaging through the entire course of your life. Its source is in Gehenna. In hell. Evil words have their source in the evil one. And the punishment of the evil tongue will also be in Gehenna, in the realm of the damned. It is a restless, verse 8, restless serpentine evil. It is full of deadly poison. You know, I've been thinking about this, back to the family, I've been thinking about this recently with regard to complaining. I'm going to confess to you, I'm a complainer. It gets worse when I'm tired. And I've been thinking about the stain, the fire spreading, the world of destruction that comes out of complaining. You know, it's fine. It's one thing to open up for the purpose of hopefully moving with a brother or sister to a place where you, you know, can speak the truth again, you can see the truth again. It's all right to lament, weep with those who weep. That's all fine, but then there's just complaining. Complaining is venting negativity. And I'm sure many, maybe you guys are not like this. Some of you are just more cheerful maybe than I am, naturally. But you have something like this. And, you know, if, if this is just one example of how the stain spreads, how the fire spreads. And you can see it spread because I find that the more I complain, guess what happens to my mood? You think my mood brightens as I complain? My mood sours the more I say. There's a general mood of just sourness. And then what I find is, guess what happens in my relationships? People, poor people who don't even know what's coming. They walk across my path and God help them if they interrupt me. They, they, you know, they add one more burden to this pile of bricks I'm carrying. And there's just this disgruntled, critical, you know, grumpy way of relating with people. And I've watched in my home, out of my mouth, it's like watching black dye seeping into the household. And eventually you just have negatively charged relations just popping all over the entire household. We're just feeding off each other's negativity. And guess where it came from? Dad's mouth. Suddenly our home is just joyless. It's graceless. This is the tongue. It's a world of unrighteousness. There are forest fires raging through our society right now, fed by words. Foolish, spiteful, false, hateful words. Burning things down. James says it should not, these things should not be so. I have to tell you, as a pastor, if there's one thing that has surprised me probably the most of anything I've seen among Christians in my 16 years in the ministry, it is it has surprised me how professed Christian faith can coexist along absolutely vile habits of speech. I've read emails from pastors that have curdled my blood. I have sat in counseling sessions and watched people speak to each other sometimes who vowed till death to each other, till death do them part, to love one another. And I have watched venom. I walk away feeling like I need a bath.
and add to that, you know, as we're talking about a world of destruction, just add to that the temptations when now in our time you can't even see who you're talking to when you're doing it all through a blasted text. You haven't even got the human angle to see what's going on as your fire rages. How we need the dominion of the last Adam over the tongue. I'll come back to this next week. But to close, the problem in human history is James finishes the text saying, we've tamed everything except the tongue. The problem in human history has never been human inability to master the natural world. I mean, look at 20th, 21st centuries. What, have, what of the world have we not mastered in the natural realm? I mean, it just seems like we're just, you know, the sky is the limit. Beyond the skies is the limit. But that's never been the problem. The problem has been our failure to rule ourselves. That's the fundamental human problem. And I don't think Elon Musk or anyone else of these entrepreneurs who are creating such interesting things, they can't help with that. And nowhere is that failure of dominion more evident than in our speaking. C.S. Lewis, in a wonderful book called Studies in Words, said this. He said, it is well we should become aware of what we are doing when we speak. Of the ancient, fragile, and well-used, immensely potent instruments that words are. And beloved, the wonderful thing about being a Christian is as the Father's word of truth dwells in us richly, exactly that awareness of which Lewis speaks and that good use, it can be not only our aspiration, but by the grace of our Father and of our Lord Jesus, it can be an accomplishment. Christ has given you the dominion of the last Adam. More next week. Father, we ask you to bless these things to our habits as well as our hearts in Jesus' good name. Amen.